Cool.fm is the perfect station for music lovers who enjoy a mix of adult pop, modern country, and classic hits. Our unique blend of different genres creates an awesome listening experience that you won't find anywhere else. With Cool.fm, you don't have to constantly change stations to hear the music you love. Just download the Live 365 app and start listening to our curated selection of modern adult and country hits, as well as the classics you know and love. So tune in to Cool.fm and start enjoying the best of all your favorite music in one place. Hi, I'm Christian DeMatteo, co-founder, editor-in-chief, and writer for Fugitive Poems and the Containment Breach series, currently on Kickstarter with some amazing reward tiers. You can find us on YouTube at Fugitive Poems. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Fugitive Poems. Go to FugitivePoems.com. We are Fugitive Poems, and we make comics. And you're watching and listening to Two Geeks Talking. Hi, I'm James Lines, co-founder of Fugitive Poems. You can reach us at FugitivePoems.com. And you're watching and listening to Two Geeks Talking. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we interview the creative people from the comic, film, TV, movie, and video game industries. And of course, I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We're joined today by not one, but two very talented and creative people. Not only are they comic co-founders of Fugitive Poems, but they are also creative people in own rights. They're also college professors, and they have an amazing Kickstarter campaign and YouTube channel that we will talk about in this scene. We're joined by the ever-talented James Lyons and Christian Demetteo. How are you both doing? Good. Thank Good. you so you much for having us. For those that don't know anything about yourselves as creative people, tell us who you are and what you're bringing to Two Geeks Talking. James, so I'm James Lyons. I'm the co-founder and creator of Fusion Poems and the art part of the equation and my friend Christian is the writing part of the equation. We are here today to talk about Fugitive Poems and to talk about our Kickstarter, which is already funded, but we're always looking for new fans to come out and support us in doing a series of comic anthologies. Title is Containment Breach, and we have several subtitle themes that are all available right now on the Kickstarter. So we've done one, two, and this is number three. The theme is of clouds and ether. We have 15 stories in there, shorts, and anything from four to, what's the longest one, Christian? 12 pages? Uh, 12 or 14, I think 12. All the stories are created using prompts. We do occasionally have a team that comes ready-made into our group, but usually we're actually pairing people up. We're pairing writers and artists and we're giving a prompt. So when we do call outs for talent for these, we look at people's portfolios. We don't ask for pitches or anything that comes after the fact and after you've been accepted into the group. So it keeps things uh, fresh and clean, new. People aren't pulling stuff out of their, you know, out of their drawers. As far as stories go, sometimes it sort of gels around itself. It was interesting, particularly clouds and ether, we wanted to sort of airy uh, the themes overall, but it kind of turned into a, a sci-fi thing that, uh, you know, we didn't necessarily prompt that, but we did get a lot. So I, I would say it's probably a heavy sci-fi leading book. Containment Breach 2, the last one was Myth Reborn, actually brought out a lot of different cool ideas as well. So you could picture taking a myth, it could be anything from a modern myth or a, you know, that sort of story or, you know, the ancient Greek myths and, and then taking it and making it your own and changing it around. We had some famous characters in there, like the Greek, Greek god Thor made it in there. It's a lot of fun and we've had a lot of success with it, getting a lot of indie artists out there. We had so much success with Containment Breach 2 that we actually put two books together. We actually have Containment Breach 4 waiting in the wings as well. So that'll be out later on uh, towards the end of the year. So I'm going to ask this question here, and this is for both of you. Uh, obviously with a campaign running, and I don't believe this is your first campaign, is it? Not our first rodeo. What have you learned from when you first started doing crowdfunding campaigns to your current campaign that you've improved on from not only an artistic perspective, but from a business perspective? So not our first rodeo makes it sound like we're old hands. This is actually our second rodeo. <laughs> so we had really big success on our first campaign. We were just sort of figuring out our way our way through it. One of the things that we've done that I've seen other campaigns not do that we sort of did naturally was we had the product made before we did the campaign. This puppy is going to happen. So that's something we, we believe in. And I think that was a big selling point in our first campaign. So that's something that we've continued to do. I see a lot of these campaigns where people are like, well, we have a page drawn 
one from each or whatever. When we get funded, we'll make the book. And when we get funded, we wait for Kickstarter to give us the money and then we hit print. Not literally, it's not coming out of my printer. We work with Mixum Printing and they do these beautiful. I put these books up against any Marvel or DC output. This is Myth Reborn. There's 160 pages of comics. The print uh, quality is just unbelievable. But so we're ready to print. In fact, volume two, volume four, all the art and art stories are done for that too. So we're probably going to go live on Kickstarter in uh, conjunction with our, our Terrificon appearance in July with volume four, but that book is pretty much done as well. So people get these really quick after they order them for Kickstarter. I mean, there are things where I'll get a package in the mail a year later. I don't even remember back in the Kickstarter. <laughs> when you get Fugitive Poems book, we, we get it out right away. And I think that's one of the best things that we did. And we only work with great people. We have a no asshole policy because this is our passion. I've got a work email where I get assholes emailing me. I don't need that for, for this. We make sure we only work with great people. They get the job done and we're ready to put these books out and raise everybody's banners. Uh, to me, that's one of the most important things that we did. What are some of the tiers that you incorporated into this particular campaign that are a little different than maybe some other campaigns of a similar genre? James, why don't you talk about your art while I go tell my children they can't be yelling in the background? <laughs> couple of tiers that uh, I call them legacy tiers where you could actually get all three of our books together, either digital or print form. The book that Christian was holding up, one of them is Containment Breach one, which was, you know, obviously our first one because of number one, that's actually going to be going out of print. We really had to actually count some of our books to figure out, you know, make sure we weren't offering something that we didn't have available for here. So the first edition of Containment Breach 2 is winding down as far as numbers and one, once they're gone, they're gone. We have a couple of the print versions of that left. People have been buying those lately. We have some I guess creative tiers where you can, along with the physical copy of three, you can get a original drawing by me. I forget what the number was on that. What is that? 150 Christian? I believe so. And then we also have the some of the production art for sale. So the production art from, even though we, we put the book together, we're also in every book as contributor. So our three story is called Thermal Coins. I have some of the production art available in there. So my usual process is to go all the way up through ink traditionally and use a, a light board for inking. Usually I, I will color digitally. It's the most challenging for me. I tend to go overboard sometimes and it's always cool to have that digital backup where I can kind of change the hues or desaturate or saturate. Of course, that's a lot harder to do with watercolors or something. You kind of stuck with what you are. I did do watercolors on Containment Breach 2. We have production art on that. And then we also have our first not safe for work tier. That was actually page six in our book. In our story. A sausage. It's a full page spread. Literally. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> I said literally. literally. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Not quite that, not that bad. I would say rated R. That's the first one we had. I usually do my pencils and then I do my inks on a light board. So I have a really clean version of the pencils and the uh, inks on those. And we're offering both of those one time only because there's only one set. This is the original work, not prints or anything. The scale on them is identical because I'm, I'm working right over them. You know, of course, they look a little bit different with the ink versus the pencil. But in particular, this set really close to uh, what's actually in the book. So you'd be able to see the full-size version. For uh, comic fans, you'd be able to see a bit of the process. Pretty yeah. cool. We're meeting one night for, we're having a Fugitive Poems meeting one night and we're trying to get the campaign together and we're looking, all right, well, what art do you have from this one? He's going through these really cool drawings. It, it, if you look, the page that we have up on the Kickstarter, so you go to Kickstarter and you go to Containment Breach, Volume 3, and you can see a page from every story. The story we did together is called Thermoclines. If you look, the page 2 that we have up there, you can see on the original production art reward tier, you can see the inks for it. So we're going through these really cool pages that he has like that one. And then suddenly he whips out, oh! I didn't remember I had this. And there's our page six splash page, which in my script, I think I just wrote sex scene. I think like page six, I just wrote sex scene. And <laughs> James comes back with this image and I'm like, yes. Now he pulls out the pencils for it and goes, oh, look, I have the inks too. And I said, we're not putting that in the production art tier. That is its own tier because somebody's going to get is not, not only is it, is it saucy, it's so cool to see his pencils and then his inks and to have both of those hanging in your living room while your children play or no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> 
I think they'd be awesome. They'd be a great addition to an office. More, more like a man cave or something. You know? <laughs> yes. Or the washroom, you know, have a mirror, you know, when they're, when they're washing their hands, they look up and have that behind them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's always water on the floor because people are washing their hands and they turn around. <laughs> yeah, or if you're a, a business, you can hang it over the urinal. Yes. Yeah. Perfect for a bar. <laughs> it's an artistic piece, quite literally. <laughs> it is gorgeous. And when you see the final page in the book, you're going to be astounded at how similar it is. What the changes that were made were were minimal. And it's a it's a gorgeous picture. And little Easter egg. There's imagery on it that actually ties into the cover of Containment Breach Volume 3, uh, which James Lyons also did. It's one of my favorite covers that he's done. He kills it every time. You also have the a bunch of other tiers as well, too, just to kind of wrap up the tiers there. You have a high-level tier and you have a cameo tier as well, from what I, I briefly saw here. You know, I always find the cameo tiers fun just because you never know where you're going to be put in, because I, I've done that before in the past, and it'd be like, oh, look, there I am. I'm famous, kind of. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the idea is that we want to, it's, you're going to be a notable extra in a panel. Like there will be, you won't have to go, I think that's the one that's me. We'll, we'll make sure that you're, uh, you're notable so that you can tell friends and family. The other panel, the other one like that is the, it's our highest level tier. It's a thousand dollars, but it's beyond worth it. We will draw you, your likeness and your name. I will write a story about you, a future fugitive poem story. And it's us. And if you look at any of our work, we do terrible, terrible things to our characters. We can pretty much guarantee that either you'll be doing terrible things or terrible awful things will happen to you we as i said in the advertisement i did for it on twitter we'll kill you real good oh this tier will be a ton of fun and you'll be able to say to people not only is this me but wait till you see what happens to me unless you want like a page six situation <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I was an art model in, in university, so I mean, I, that's that's old hat for me. You know, I, I'd, I'd want something different, you know. Oh, Kurt, hit the tier. We'll, we'll make it work. <laughs> <laughs> what is the most misunderstood aspect of both the horror and sci-fi genre that people who don't follow it misunderstand? Oh, wow. I love it. That the artists are actually insane. Well, no, that's 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 a given though isn't it what do you think james i think people tend to underrate sci-fi you know both as novels and it, i think it's become a it comes and goes in sort of popular media christian and i and i would dare say you grew up in the star wars yep i'm kurt that was the huge thing and it was spaceships and so forth i actually yesterday in a grocery store there's a probably 17 year old girl and her name was Leia. And I was like, oh, I know who your parents are. <laughs> and, uh, I asked her if uh, she had a brother, Luke, and that was his middle name. So you know, it, it kind of comes and goes, but I've been a long time reader of sci-fi. And there can be really in-depth stories about humanity, even though they're in a foreign nature. You know, you're not dealing with real history or anything. There's still those in-depth stories that are involved. And particularly what comes to mind is Isaac Asimov for me, seeing all the stuff that we see these days about AI and confluence of real artificial intelligence stuff that we thought when we were kids looking at C-3PO would be distant future and that, you know, not anything that we would see. You know, I, I have a feeling now that within my lifetime, we might actually see humanoid ro robots walking around on the street as, who knows, maybe even subservient creatures like they are in iRobot, right? Yeah. You know, where, they, where you have that endless question about being the dominant and subservient yeah. species and all those questions that come in, you know, you get into some really deep human questions with sci-fi and, uh, you know, it's, it's not just laser guns and fancy spaceships, although when I was a kid, I, I used to actually pray at night for the Millennium Falcon <laughs> to be able to uh, glide across the galaxy and light, light speed. Excuse me, that's a, the wrong one, light speed. I love this question. I'm a huge sci-fi fan. One of my uh, writing gods is Ray Bradbury. He's actually the reason I started writing. I had to go get this while you guys were talking. This is a signed letter from Ray Bradbury. And that's actually, that's not a stamp. That's actually a signature. When I opened it up, I completely expected it to be a stamp. I am, Ray Bradbury is the reason I started writing. James made me think of it because he's talking about all the human elements in sci-fi. If you read the Martian Chronicles, oh, yeah. 
which is about people landing on Mars and meeting Martians and, you know, they're aliens. It is one of the most human story collections. If he had taken the sci-fi out of it, people would appreciate it today like a work of great literature. But because it's sci-fi, the same way with the Academy and, and you know, Oscars and all that, because it's sci-fi, it's, it's pulp. But I happen to be a student of pulp, noir is one of my favorite genres. And there's so much humanity in there. There's so many lessons, but they don't feel like lessons because there's something about when you're writing a detective story, when you're writing science fiction or horror, that it's less didactic. That the reader or the viewer bring their own conclusion to it, that you fed them in some way, but without knocking them over the head. In a really entertaining way, you can come up with wild stuff. There's a story in the Martian Chronicles about a wounded astronaut and this Martian woman takes him in, but she's got to hide him from her husband because he won't know what's going on. And it is such a real story that could easily have taken place on Earth, uh, you know, with a wounded mechanic, right? It's powerful and you feel for this Martian woman and her, her life situation. That's what I think about when I write is how can I tell a wild story? And I tell my students this, never write toward a moral. Never write toward, I want to prove that blah, blah, blah is blah, blah, blah. Because then you write a crap story. It's like a thinly veiled message that you're like a, like a sermon. People say to me, I can't start writing. I never know how to start a story. The hardest part is starting. It's not. Create a character and have them do something. Bob picked up his cup of coffee. All right. Well, what if it's not a cup of coffee? What's a, What if it's a cup of sarlacc juice? Right. And where is he? What, what if it make it sci-fi, make it horror? What if it picked up his cup of blood, picked up the skull full of blood, right? See where it goes. See where the story takes you. You have beliefs, you have feelings, and your characters are going to make choices that you're going to have opinions on. Follow them, and whatever you believe will come out without you preaching to anyone. And the best thing you can do, more than teaching anyone a moral lesson, the greatest thing you can do for someone in this hard-ass, difficult world is give them a couple of minutes of entertainment. You know, George Carlin had this whole routine on prostitution. And why was it illegal? How is it that the worst thing you could do for someone is give them an orgasm? Being that you're both college professors, of course, in your respective fields of art and writing here, looking at the younger generation you're currently teaching, how have they surprised you in absorbing the knowledge you're giving them? And how are they turning it to their advantage? The thing that I thought was a deficiency or might be a deficiency is actually proving not to be uh, with the real thinkers. And, and that's the shocking amount of media content available because I'm 963 years old. Growing up, I'd watch the same movie every Saturday. You know, it was on VHS tape. My parents had copied it. I shouldn't say that. They had bought it. They had not dubbed it from a video store. That would be wrong. And I'd watch The Goonies 5,000 times. I'd watch Space Camp 5,000 times, Flight of the Navigator, uh, Last uh, Starfighter, over and over and over and over and over. And it's a mad, 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 mad world, by the way, which is a great film. My kids included, my children included, they watch a movie and it's in their rearview mirror. They had a great time. There's six billion more things. I've been re-watching the Alien and Predator movie in order of release, and I realized how long has it been since I re-watched one of my favorites? I used to re-watch all the time. And so these kids, the amount of content, and you add to it that they're watching YouTube, Snapchat, and they're watching these tiny things. Uh, and that's what I thought the deficiency would be. But the thinkers in every generation, the thinkers are taking this information and they're combining all the sources that they're getting actually into new stuff, new takes. And they see the world differently because of the amount of content that they have to sort through. I think I have a hope that I'm seeing glimmers of that because they don't have the favorites that I had that I watched over and over, which to me is like loyalty and passion, that they're going to be less likely to make pastiche, which is something I always have to watch. I love working with prompts because I believe in creative limitations. Because if someone told you to write, just write anything you want, chances are you'd write something that's been written a million times. You're like, oh, I like I like spaceships with blah, blah. But when you have, you say, no, it has to take place. It's got to involve a pair of glasses, a crowbar, and a squirrel. You're going to write a story nobody's ever written before. That's actually prompts I give my students. I come up with three things and they have to write a story. Well, these kids have so much to draw from that they're less likely to come up with all the tropey, cliche stuff because it's all meshed in a mishmash in their heads. And the thinkers have found the through lines. And I love that. Today's 
youth. That's a tough one. To be honest with you, I, I'm not seeing a lot of world-changing stuff come out of students. I think it's the same thing uh, that Christian was talking about. They're so used to seeing so much content. Unfortunately, the, the way the entertainment world has gone, everything's like a copy of a copy of a copy. You see all these rehashes of old movies, even movies that don't need to be redone masterpieces for one you know uh, christian talks about watching movies again and again i think i've seen john carpenter's the thing like 87 times at least and it's a masterpiece and i didn't mind the remake of it it really didn't improve the story at all i like the fact that it had a bit of the origin of it in there i see a lot of kind of rehashing out of students these days they don't really understand or are prepared to do the kind of original stuff i mean we, you know there's always exceptions to that i tend to get a lot of kind of the opposite of what christian said i, get, I do get a lot of rehash stuff i have to fight tooth and nail to get them to not do spider-man and superman and you know there's nothing wrong with drawing that stuff and you can improve i sit and draw from different styles. I'll, I'll sit and I'll look at, I've been looking at, I'll probably mispronounce his name, but Mike Diodato lately, I've been trying to look at his style and emulate it, incorporate some of that. Pieces of that can show up in my different works, but it's not my work. I have not seen anyone that has shocked me lately with true originality. There's a lot of worship of anime these days. Uh, anyone under age 30 kind of worships anime. I got nothing against anime, but when you just copy that style, rehash it all the time, it gets kind of stagnant after a while. And they're still creating comics today, Comfort and Adam, as they're known online, they were the first ones I ever saw to blend Western and Eastern influences together into their own <laughs> style. I thought that was unique and amazing and, and interesting in that concept. The yeah. manga influenced or, or anime influenced the style, which is fine. But I mean, when you look at the true masters of that work, that, that's a whole nother level than what gets spit out currently. Yeah, I think the minimalist style which is, you know, that's part of Japanese culture that that sort of minimalist style is done right can be really amazing. But they have all the chops underneath first to be able to do that. But, it, you know, it's something that you can kind of emulate. And I, I think it becomes a crutch for a lot of students because, you know, you can emulate it. It's not necessarily realistic. It's like playing a, in a cover band and, you know, you play easy pop tunes where you're, you know, you're riffing three chords or something. You're not really breaking into what is your own feeling, your own look, you know, originality there. And that's one of the most important things to me. Kind of society's fault. We went through decades of abstract painting and put whatever you want onto a canvas and call it art. And that's art. You know, it, we could have a whole art history conversation about that, about abstract expressionism and how it sort of intentionally, and it, you know, you would ask some artists and they say that was the reason why it happened, but, you know, kind of ruined art as it was and kind of, you know, a lot of people lost faith in that, you know, when you say, hey, I'm going to put three smears on a canvas and sign it and call it art. I think that had a profound impact on visual storytelling. In the wake of that, we do have, you know, this sort of uptake, that sort of consumption, sort of like what you see now and, you know, Disney buys Marvel and beats the crap out of all the Marvel titles and Disney buys Star Wars and beats the crap out of all those titles and that kind of thing. Reinterpretation of the mediums that we grew up on has evolved and changed, not always for the better when it comes to the consumption of it either. It's just, it can be too much or it can be just too little and they're just trying to make a quick buck. But when a good story is told and then and showcased, then at least, you know, the value that we remember either gets better or it stays the same. So we're not really losing anything if in that regard, but it seems like it's few and far between these days. Yeah. I think it swings like a pendulum. Mm -hmm. Now we'll go back more creative stuff. You know, that stuff gets old after a while. Anthologies are always a fun, uh, amazing time, and you've created some amazing works, especially with Containment Breach here. And looking at Volume 3, the collective of artists that you have here is truly astounding and amazing, and some have actually been on the show, actually, in the past, oh, cool. too. Who are some of the, the artists that either approached you or you filtered through when you were putting this together? What we do is we put out a call, say that we're doing an anthology, as James said earlier, and we, we don't say what the theme is, like we haven't announced the theme yet for volume four, uh, though the creators know. Say we're doing another anthology, people send us their best work, and we put teams together. This time we got so many people that wanted to be involved. I uh, I had reached out to, I think, only two. Matt Battaglia being one, who's got actually House on Fire, uh, should be in your mailboxes if you ordered it. Uh, it's his new book from, I think, Living the Lion Press. 
Matt Battaglia had uh, Ghost of the Carousel with uh, Dauntless. He's amazing. And he's in this book. He was in volume two as well. But we had so many people come out that we uh, we were able to pick and choose from people that we knew and loved and people we hadn't had in the book before. Um, Jay Sheik is in this book uh, with a story that I wrote and getting to write a story for Jay Sheik was a huge honor. I've been a fan of his for years. He just had the first uh, issue of Hush Ronan come out for Band of Bards comics. And that's something you want to get a, get your hands on. As well as Ben Humanix Bro D, uh, which came out from Band of Bards, by the way, and he was in volume two. But Gabe Martini, actually, if you look at that beautiful, I love bottom third that you put together there. That's Gabe's art. The woman, those beautiful eyes that really those eyes, James nailed it. James said, that's the image for our campaign. So that's Gabe Martini, who wrote a story, did a story written by Dustin Luke Nelson and colored by Jack Fantomi. Jack Fantomi is a great comic jam, thecomicjam.com, with Chasey Allen, who did Bigfoot Knows Karate. He's the editor-in-chief for that, and he is a story in this book. And Jack Fantomi is an artist on a story written by Patrick Hicks in this book. So we, we've had some tremendous people. Fern Lamb worked with J.D. Harlock on this beautiful story about a baby, an infant that appears in the sky, and no one knows why it's there. Yoni Hogg did the uh, lettering for that. But we also have uh, the Hill Brothers, who did a wild story called Hemlock. We've got Camilla Sims and Leland Bjerg, who did a beautiful story around a prompt Hammurabi's coat, which Leland told me he had no idea what to do with. And that was BS when you see the story. He really rocked it. And Camilla did a great job with the art. I've gotten caught up thinking about all these great creators, like Andre Briano and Yu Feng, but I can't remember what. We actually have a lot of interviews of the people that Christian was just talking about up on our YouTube page. You search up Fugitive Poems on YouTube, you can find us. And we have six or seven interviews up of Containment Beach 3, soon to uh, more soon to follow as soon as I can find time to stick them out there. We also have a bunch from the Containment Breach 2, some people that have been back for three. Uh, we have Brian Beardsley, who did a couple of stories for us. Did you get Van Tomey on camera this time? Christian? Yeah, well, I thought, well, thank goodness. Otherwise, I'd still be saying Jack Van Thom. I had <laughs> no idea his name was pronounced Van Tome. I got him on actually for two. I managed to get one with Patrick Hicks and him and one with Jack. And oh, yeah, that's right. We do have one from two. Yeah. Yeah. So I oh. had to make up because I didn't get him on volume two. Jack actually was a, uh, what do you call it? I don't know sports at all. So James has to do this. When someone comes in to fill in for somebody pinch, else, I don't know. Pinch hitter. Pinch hitter. Pinch hitter. He was a pinch hitter. I was going to say swing something, but I knew that was wrong. I don't know sports. I really feel this geek's thing. We had an artist who had to quit way late into the project for some personal reasons. And I reached out to Jack and I said, is there any chance you could make this in under, and before I finish a sentence, he had the comic done. Jack is... <laughs> One of the fastest producing artists of quality. I mean, I could have done it, you know, but it would have looked horrendous. Uh, he puts out beautiful, beautiful work every week with the Comic Jam. And if you're not following the comicjam.com at the Comic Jam, you need to get on it. Every week they put out a slew of one-page comics or at least four by Jack Fantome. <laughs> it's a great break from work. Uh, there's a different theme every week, and we have a number of comic jammers involved, including the master of visual sound, Kevin D. Lynch, a great letterer, and uh, Tom Line, another great letterer on this project as well, and they're both comic jammers. We've got some great people. As you can tell, it's a great networking tool. I, I would say the majority of our artists are, a lot of them we've met through the comic jam. Everyone there from a, you know, kind of newbie artist to people that have been working for years. It's a great place to get to know people and work on your skills and so forth. Our goal, one of our missions for Fugitive Poems is to, and I know from a business standpoint, you're only supposed to have one mission, but the hell with that. One of our missions is to raise the banners of other creative and independent artists like ourselves. We've got this guy, Vitaly Kalchenko in our book. He's from the Ukraine. He's in Kiev. And he can only get in touch with me when they have internet because of everything going on. He, he's creating in a war zone, a literal war. It's unbelievable to me. He has a story in volume two and volume three and possibly two in volume four, by the way. I don't know if I told you, James. He randomly sent me another thing that was awesome. He's incredible. Vitaly Kalchenko, he's in Band of Bards Amongst the Stars. He's in the Fairy Tales of Mars that's coming out. And the guy is, is an unbelievable talent. And then Travis Hill, who I'm doing an 
interview with James on Wednesday. I hadn't gotten him yet. Travis Hill, who's got a bunch of books coming out from Don't Listen, Band of Bards, Techno Nights, and a couple other things. Him and the great, the great Sam Prouse. What an artist. They're both amazing. And they did a story called Sons and Fathers. If you back the campaign, which you want to do, it's 140 pages of electricity. It's a, just a wild, awesome sci-fi collection of stories. The second update I just put out, I released as a thank you, the first page of Sons and Fathers. And you can see another page from it on the Kickstarter. And that's Travis Hill, who's just incredible. So we've met really amazing people in this campaign, in all these campaigns. What was an early experience where you learned that language had power? Oh, wow. I'll jump right on that. I was just talking to someone about this the other day. I, I mean, that on day one of my class, my college writing classes, which no one wants to take, it's a required class to learn how to write essays, right? That's the first thing I tell them is that words have power. Words have power. And the more words you know, and the better, it's not about 50 cent words, or I don't know with inflation, they're $1.25. It's about knowing the right words with the right connotation, the right energy. And I think that I, and this goes back to an earlier question you answer, asked. This goes back to my first experience with horror. And that was John Belair's, who nobody talks about a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, because everything in the world was pre and post COVID, right? Eli Roth, the horror director, did a kid's movie called The House with the Clock in Its Walls. And it was fantastic. He did a great job. I wish he had done the other two books. But that's actually my least favorite series. It was great. From John Belair's. I can't believe that John Belair's isn't a celebrated, one of those 80s authors we all talk about. I remember reading The Sorcerer's Skull. It was either that or The Curse of the Blue Figurine. Being in my room, terrified, and putting down the book and saying, why the hell am I scared of these words? I'm in my bedroom. It's daytime. Everything's fine in the universe. And I have a chill. And this is still what I look for in horror. Horror is great when my spine feels encased in ice. That's my litmus test. And I felt that. And I said, what? What is he doing? How is he doing it? And then later on with Ray Bradbury, the emotions that Ray Bradbury elicited from me. And like, what, what is he doing? I learned that you could do a one sentence paragraph. So I've written a lot of prose in my life. I've written uh, novels and screenplays and short stories and blah, blah, blah. It's my, my passion for writing was really sparked by Ray Bradbury, someone, Miss Barbara Gallo handed me in 10th grade. She'd been cleaning out her classroom and she said, Christian, take this home and read it. And it was the illustrated man. And I said, you know, I got a lot of books going on and you read it. And I said, okay, Miss Barbara Gallo. And that changed. She, she's the reason I have no money. I was going to go into business and because of her, I became a writer. Thanks, Miss Barbara Gallo. It was him that I learned that you could do a one sentence paragraph from, but not too often. And that was that was huge. And I learned the art of it really from Bradbury in so many ways and so many other greats. My son's name is Dashiell because Dashiell Hammett is one of the most important writers in my life. Wrote The Maltese Falcon, one of my favorite, my favorite movie and one of my favorite books. But it was John Belair's. I said, this man is frightening me with word choices and word order. <laughs> I mean, how basic is that? Out of reality. I know where I am. And I'm completely safe, but I am scared shitless. And I was like, there's something here. How do you do that? That, that I think, is probably my first memory of, of saying, holy crap. <laughs> History with words goes back more to music. I've always been a reader as well, but I think music has really always hit me more in my soul. And it have to be the lyrics part, although I, you know, I do like all aspects of the music. Back in my earliest formative days, listening to Rush, and I really love Rush's lyrics and outlook on, on life, you know, of course, influenced uh, by others like uh, Anne Ryan and so forth. That sort of libertarian base that I have become sort of comes from music and the, the idea of free will and that sort of thing from Rush. And I was also a big fan of Judas Priest back in the day. And, you know, that kind of uh, Rob Halford's music was always operatic and, you know, the storytelling elements, particularly of their early albums, Black Sabbath. A lot of those lyrics kind of really formulated and made me who I am. You know, of course, there's thousands of influences that make a, a man. But I think that was my first introduction to sort of hard words, words that can change the world if you uh, listen to them. It's uh, always been like based in my music. Yeah, I'd have to say Led Zeppelin as well. You know, growing up, having that stuff continuously, kind of like Christian said earlier, when he's watching the same movies all the time, you know, when you had CDs or cassette tapes or something, you would sit and listen to the same one again and again, it would ingrain into you. That had a profound effect on my life and the, the lyrics and so forth. I mean, I can name 
lots of them early metallica all, all that kind of stuff sort of formed my part of my you know my outlook on on life so I, that's where i think uh, probably when i was around 10 11 years old when i started to figure out that music had a lot of power everyone has one person that inspired them on their path to where they are today who was that for you oh geez man that's a question I, I, you should have told me you're gonna ask me that seven years ago you know what uh, I, I'm my father, Joseph Demetrio. Very first thing that came to my head. All my loves, uh, whether it's music, and I love music as well, movies, literature. I remember him handing me The Prisoner of Zenda, not Zelda, <laughs> Prisoner of Zenda, telling me, sit down and read this. All of my passion for excitement, for adventure, for mystery, for exploring the darkness through the light of good comes from my father. I mean, he handed me Dashiell Hammett's complete novels, which I handed James recently, actually. He said, read this. I remember reading Red Harvest, and he'd already shown me the Maltese Falcon and listening to the Allman Brothers and just so much great music. He introduced me to Cat Stevens and got me into rock and roll, and he got me into jazz. He's such a passionate man. I'm so lucky I still have him in my life. Essential to me. And he has supported every step of my artistic journey. Loves James. Yeah, I, that's Joseph Demetrio, my father. I'd have to second on Joe. I, I unfortunately lost my dad a long time ago, almost uh, 23 years ago now. He went way too young. I told Christian I want I want his dad to adopt me so we can be brothers. He is a great guy. To get back to the answer, though, you can look over my left shoulder here and you can see Frank Frazetta up there on the wall. He's a big influence of mine since early childhood. I don't know how I came across him. I think it was through Ralph Baskey that I first heard the name Frazetta back when Baskey did the Lord of the Rings animation. I think that's where I first got introduced to him and started looking him up. I'm so old that it was before the internet. I think the internet was probably around, but I, I didn't have anything to do with it. So, you know, went to the library and found some books on him and went through magazines and so forth. He was always a big influence on me. Also, once again, to the metal thing, Derek Riggs, the guy who created all the illustrations for Iron Maiden. I was always so inspired by those. I used to draw them all the time. I've actually been looking for one of those old school blue kind of denim three ring binders because I used to always, that was always my drawing pad when I was in class, supposed to be listening during math class, but instead I'm drawing Eddie from Iron Maiden all over everything. I think he was a big inspiration for me. Uh, Christian and I are actually excited. We're going to go to a signing. He's going to be up in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York in September. We get to meet him. So, you know, it wasn't just Derek Riggs. Uh, you know, a lot of those album covers really inspired me as well just to get into to drawing and so forth. My my dad was a graphic designer as well, but you know he worked a lot. I didn't have as much time with him as I would have liked. Artistic side kind of just runs in my veins. Basically, can't get away from it. There's I can't do other things. It's the only thing that I really have talent at. So it's just been kind of something that I've always had had to deal with, for better or for worse. You know, I think that's where my inspiration comes from. It's the things that. I grew up with, you know, as far as uh, illustrations. From a professional standpoint, you're both college professors. You are both leading the next generation of creative people. You both have an amazing talent in both writing and art, and you've created three, almost four volumes of your Containment Breach series and many more that we haven't had a chance to touch on. So professionally, you're both successful in that regard. Do you consider yourselves personally successful? That's a, that's a, that's a tough one. Kind of depends on what you feel success is yeah they're sort of the modern day now lust you know lust for gold christian is talking about old uh almond brothers it reminds me of that skinner song you know forget about your lust for gold and be a simple man right kind of depends on what success is i am able to spend time with my family and so forth and you know, I, I know a lot of people that are monetarily more successful than i am but you know if you get them talking it might not be the happiest people in the world. You know, money doesn't necessarily make the world go around. It's a real easy thing to say, hey, if I had that money, everything else would change. But I'm, I'm not sure it does. I've seen both sides of the story and I've met some pretty miserable people who make a lot more money than I. As far as successful goes, we're trying to work our way through this. I think our partnership is one of the best things that I've ever done. So we're successful there. I'm in, truly inspired by uh, Christian's work, his writing. Inspires me to do what I think is some of my best work in my lifetime. Who knows what's going to come up next? You know, having been at this now for, you know, we keep saying five years, but if we do the math, it's more like seven years. We've really been at this for a while. I can look, you know, even back to Containment Breach 1 and, and see how much I've improved there. And that's, you know, that says, you know, someone who's already been experienced that sort of growth there, being on that artistic journey. That's one of the things I say to my students, you know, your experience as an artist is a journey. It's not a destination. Students are always asking me, oh, you know, how did you find your style? You know, there's really no such thing. You're inspired by certain things. 
It's also a certain way that your pens and pencils move around and so forth. I feel that I've been more successful than ever in the last uh, seven years, hanging out and dealing with Christians' creativity and manias and combining art together. So yeah, I, I definitely feel that we are successful. It'd be great to be able to, obviously, everyone always wants to make more money on their passion projects. Yeah, I, I think I have found success in uh, comic books so far. <laughs> Yeah, uh, just give me a second. I'm getting the answer from my therapist. This question was... Uh... <laughs> I, I have two more that you're going to have to answer, and they, they go way deeper than this one. All right, Adam, stay on the line. Uh, <laughs> uh, do I feel... You know what? Uh, that's actually a question I struggle with all the time. James talks about the lust for gold, and by the way, Simple Man is possibly, possibly one of the best Skinner songs ever. Yes, I'm going to kind of tie it back to what James said. When I get a text message from James with a, a little crappily taken photo of his computer or something with a drawing on it, right? I am beyond elated that he's drawn something else that I, I've written. And usually when I look at it, I then change the story in my head a little bit. I'm like, what, he did that with that? Oh, well, you know what we can do with it? I'm entirely inspired. This is a uh, Ouroboros, uh, Ouroboros, I know, I think it's Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail. But in, in a great way, this energy of feeding each other, feeding each other, the energy that I get from his work is incredible. And it makes me want to write better every time. It makes me want to push even further into things that nobody's done before because I want to see him draw it and show me what it is that I was thinking of. And that's what he does when he draws. When I come home from my job and I sit down to do fugitive poem stuff, I don't feel like it's another job. I don't feel like I'm working. I feel this is where I was meant to be all the time. So yeah, I, I guess, yes, I do consider myself uh, a success because I'm happy. I got a beautiful family. I got a beautiful wife and children, three great kids who you know, won't shut up, but they're awesome. I got uh, great, great, great friends I've been blessed with. I got James which is one of my number one blessings. And we're making art together, which is all I ever wanted to do. And I'm making art with one of the coolest people I've ever met. So yeah, I'm going to have to tell my therapist that you brought me to this revelation, sir. Thank you. Not a problem. And uh, I'll take whatever 10% of his fee that you give him. So it's all good. <laughs> the reverse of success is failure. How do you deal with your failures? <laughs> I just got myself all psyched now. They hit me hard. I don't see them. I see failure where other people don't, you know, where they're like, well, no, you did great. You did great. I'm like, not good enough. Not good enough. I'm a product of the uh, 80s VS power of positive thinking. <laughs> I was raised on a lot of that. It actually pushed me sort of in the wrong direction to never think I've, I've done quite enough. But I'm surrounded by great people who keep me grounded. No, you did it. And it's awesome. And this is, and you, you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know where it's going to go. And that's the thing about art is that you put something out and it's a hit. That's awesome. You put something out and it's not, you know, you know, James Melville died, not to compare myself ever to Melville, but he died with Moby Dick as a cultural icon of failure and actually insanity. One of the reviewers of Moby Dick said, someone should go check on Melville because this book proves he has psychosis, that he would put this out. If you read Bartleby the Scribner, uh, it's entirely a reaction to what happens when you put words out in the universe and they're, they're either not heard or they're ignored or they're seen as wrong. And that's what Bartleby the Scribner is about. And I've got people that keep me grounded and that you're producing and you're making really good stuff and you're putting your all into everything. And when something works, it's an immediate dopamine hit, right? But when something doesn't, you don't know where it's going to land and who it's going to touch. And I know all my psychological journey and the art that has kept me afloat and inspired me and showed me another way to think. Not all of it was from people who were, you know, successful in any, in any lust for gold kind of way. What bothers me most is when I haven't put my all into something, when I do something quickly because I got to get it done or whatever. Uh, and I can feel that. And, and a lot of times other people can't see it, but I deal with that by, by not doing that, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna make it the, everything I do the best that I can. Dealing with failure, uh, I feel like I'm on a job interview now. What are three things that you've done to uh, help your fellow workers? But this not being a job interview, I'm just gonna say heavy drinking. Yeah, oh, here, here. I like to detach myself out. I really am a big fan of getting out there and seeing nature and figuring out that you're a small cog 
in a very large world. In my formative years, in my early 20s, I went, you know, traveled across the country with a bunch of people from uh, Great Britain. And I, I think that had a real impact on me where I saw, got, got out of, you know, the New York attitude and um, lifestyle and saw what it's like to live all over our country. And, you know, and also just the wide range of nature and so forth. And it's, it's funny, all the guys that I, had met, I, I had worked at a, a camp, uh, I was about 20 years old, and they were all from Great Britain, and they they all had this idea that all of the United States looked like Clint Eastwood movie, like a spaghetti <laughs> western. They thought everything was deserts and cactus and so forth, and of course, when they landed in New York and got sent up into the Adirondacks, they saw that it was completely different. I, I've never had a huge ego, and I, I, I don't know if it's egotistical to say that, I've never had a huge ego, I've always been a humble person. I think failure is part of life and you got to get over yourself. You're just uh, one more person. You can talk about people that became famous after they died, right? That's all fleeting anyways. What is failure? Failure is to stop believing in yourself and stop believing in things that you hold dear. That to me, you know, having something not do as well as you would think. I really think failure is just, uh, you know, not, not believing in yourself. The younger generation is looking at your work and they're becoming inspired or creative in their own way. The fact that you have not only the younger generation with you and your children, but also that you're teaching the younger generation as well in these varying skills shows that they will become creative in some way, shape or form. How can they inspire the generation that follows them? James just talked about continuing to believe in yourself. He said it much better, but follow your passion and stay to your values. I hope that I'm putting that into my kids, my three children, and I'm hoping I'm putting that into my students as well. The key is to get people to keep producing. And that sounds really uh, consumerist. I mean, they're what they love, to follow what they love and make things that other people aren't making and put their thoughts out there, whatever they are. One of the things that really scares me about the Twitter era that we're in and it's not just Twitter, but Twitter seems like one of the more virulent sewers of it. This idea of uh, if you have a different opinion, you're a monster. Yeah, you know, I don't have the same opinions I had five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, I've gone back to some of the opinions I had when I was eight or nine. You know, I, your life is evolving. And to feel the freedom of being able to express your opinions, to be able to say what you're thinking through your art and let it be part of the, I just forgot the German word for it, uh, zeitgeist. zeitgeist. Yeah, thank you. To let it be part of the zeitgeist and let it be part of the discussion. You know, when someone has a thought you don't agree with, you shouldn't try and burn them at the stake. You should think about it. <laughs> maybe they're right or maybe... They're wrong in a way that helps you better explain your point of view. And that's what I want the next generation to do is make their art, put out their thoughts, share their opinions that they might not even hold later. Because the more thought we hear, the more we think, and the more we evolve as a species. And to me, that's one of the most important points of, of art and creation. It's a marker for evolution, what we create, what we're thinking about, and how we put it out in a non-didactic to go back to that word, way. That's what I hope will happen, is that we get back to a place where people have put out their wildest opinions and thoughts. We can debate them. We can discuss them. You can decide who you don't want to hang out with because you now know who you are. I'll end this question with this. I start every class I teach with, you're all going to fail. No, I'm kidding. I start every class I teach with the two most important words of philosophy, know thyself. And most people die never having known who they really were. and Therefore, they never found their purpose, what their talents were leading them toward, what they could have done, and how they could have used it to help others and make the world a better place. Know thyself. Sit with your thoughts. React to things. Don't just intake. Uh, digest. Break apart and resynthesize as you. That's what I really hope will happen. I have to agree with Christian. Talked about free will before. It seems like a far away concept, but it's really something that you live with every day. And I see more and more particularly young people, you know, the people that I looked up to when I was younger from older generations, they overcame a lot of things. But with that said, you know, we also have sort of crappy things happen to us in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, I think you need to learn to think for yourself, not just absorb your opinions from social media or wherever they're coming from. If you have a certain idea, it's good to, you know, research it and come up with your own opinion. When the mob 
takes over and starts to condemn people for having their own opinions and so forth and censoring people and canceling people. It's not a way to have a free society, which is still my belief of what the United States is. You know, you talked about the, the next generation of youth. I think we are a much more global world now than just America. We have people in our books that come from all over the world. I think it's a much more worldly issue. And that's a very good thing. And we have to remember how good we have it in the United States as far as censorship and so forth where we go. We have to make sure that we uphold that, spread that out through the rest of the world. You have your own valid opinions and try to educate yourself on your opinions. Don't just take the latest news blips and consider that handed down to you. And that's your outlook on life. There's nothing more tragic than that. Someone who sits in their ignorance and you know doesn't, doesn't expand their minds. Life's a journey. Going one generation, uh, affecting the next generation, I think really you get to promote, you know, further down the line there, your own children and so forth. I try to inspire my kids to, you know, think for themselves as well. So far, they're doing it. If your life was a comic book or a film or whatever medium you like to consume, what would its title be? And what would its soundtrack be? I'm not sure about the title. My soundtrack, I think, would definitely be Slayer. Lots of hard tracks and I think it would involve swords and sorcery and that sort of thing. Would like to picture myself slaying dragons or something like that. I think that would be a fun movie to make. Reality is not movies and so forth, but you know it's fun to think along those lines. I'm thinking the soundtrack would be a combination of opera, blues, and heavy metal because they're all the same kind of music. It's all about extreme passion, and I love all of them. A lot of Black Crows would be in there about the Black Crows, definitely. I would want it to be a noir that made me look a lot cooler than I am. <laughs> Maybe like Humphrey Bogart's In a Lonely Place, nice. but not quite so psychotic. <laughs> I would want it to be called... Uh, uh, hold on, I've almost got it. I would want it to be called Pages and Whiskey. <laughs> Love it. That's great. Well, Christian and James, I do hate to say, but that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. I want to thank you both so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Oh, wow. What a great time. And, and we never get these kind of questions. And this is the way we like to talk. Thank you. Yeah. Before I let you both go. Where can we find you? How can we support you? Of course, where is the Kickstarter campaign? When does it end? And of course, anything else you'd like to both promote? Uh, we are on Kickstarter. As you said, you type in, go to the search, type in Containment Breach. You'll see volume two there, which is closed. So go to Containment Breach, volume three of Clouds and Ether, which is 140 pages of wi the wildest sci-fi comics of 2023 from the greatest the greatest indie creators going. I'm so proud of everyone in this book who took it to the next level. We've got incredible reward tiers there, including a lot of limited stuff that is running out as I speak. So go there, back the book, get your copy will come within two months, most probably, so long as the printer is not having COVID delays for paper like they did on our last one. Otherwise, at Fugitive Poems on Instagram, at Fugitive Poems on Twitter. I've got the worst handle on, on Twitter, at C-D-M-E-T-C. It's Christian DeMatteo, et cetera. I didn't know I'd be promoting myself when I created that. James is at Jamlines2112 on Twitter, at Jamlines on Instagram. But at Fugitive Poems, go to FugitivePoems.com for our, our website. Uh, actually, you can read our story from Containment Breach Volume 1 for free there, Shelter in Flames. And then you want to go to the YouTube channel, where we've got a ton of incredible creator interviews. I interview everyone that's in our books about uh, who's not camera shy, as James said uh, previously, about, about their work, all the stuff they're doing in the world. So go to YouTube, at Fugitive Poems, subscribe and like, and have a great time with some great content. Well, like I said, that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. You can, of course, find this interview and a thousand plus others on our website, tgtmedia.com or twogeekstalking.com. That's the word two, not the number two. The website's a little foobarred at the moment, so I point everyone to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash c forward slash tgtmedia. Of course, the podcast is back after 13 or so years. You can find that at twogeekstalking.podbean.com or on any of your audio streaming services, just search for Two Geeks Talking because that's called branding and you can find it there. And as I say every week, everyone has a story to tell. It's up to me to help bring that out. Thanks for listening and watching on Two Geeks Talking.